Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Property. I'm Peter Switzer and this week we blow the property doomsday predators out of the water with the guy who relaxes by flying his drone to catch out sharks preying on New South Wales swimmers on beaches up and down the coastline. Chris Joy of Coolabar Capital. And Chris tips house prices are more likely to rise than fall and given he's been the best predictor of coronavirus infections and deaths here in Australia and across the world, he's a guy you ignore at your hip pocket peril. And then we have the economist view on how deeply our economy will fall and then rebound and then how that will hit and hurt the property sector now and into the spring sales. We do that with AMP Capital's Diana Mussina. And then we see what it's like being a valuer who has to guess what's happening to home values for home buyers, buyers agents and lenders when you can't even enter the property. And we do that with Tony Mangione of Mangione Property Valuations and Consultancy. So let's kick off and catch up with the very controversial Chris Joy. Well, at this point in time with the coronavirus uh, clearly unsettling the economy, there are people out there making predictions that house prices could fall by as much as 40%. And of course, the doomsday merchants who always want to believe that house prices will fall by that amount have been jumping on board, giving themselves a good pat on the back for correctly predicting it, despite the fact <laughs> they've only been helped by a potential pandemic. But Chris Joy, the person who loves fighting doomsday merchants, says forget about 40% house price falls. Chris Joy from Coolabar Capital, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you for having me, Peter. All right, now Chris, let's just kick off. You, you wrote a story in the AFR where you basically poo-pooed the idea that this coronavirus will, will create massive house price falls. Give us the, the guts of your argument. Yeah, so we forecast um, in March that the peak in new infections would come much earlier than people had anticipated. The epidemiologists were talking about peaks in June, July. The Prime Minister, uh, Peter, was talking about having to put the country in a six-month business hibernation, yep. which, which, which would have been depressionary. Hmm. And on that basis, the RBA is talking about the biggest economic contraction in about 100 years. So that does look very grim for house prices. Um, but as I mentioned, we have built very sophisticated COVID-19 forecasting models. And in March published an academic research paper, basically projecting that the peak in uh, US, European and Australian infections would be early April. <clears throat> and that's what we've seen. We've seen curves flatten quite dramatically around the world. And this now gives uh, an important corollary, and that is the opportunity to exit containment much earlier than the uh, PM and policymakers thought. Yep. So we've proposed also in March that the PM exit containment after one to two months. Initially, uh, <clears throat> I think he was not partial to that view uh, based on you know, conversations with the government at the time, but he hasn't referred to the six-month business hibernation in three or four weeks. And he's now actively talking about exiting containment early in the next three weeks. Now, this is very important for the housing market because what is actually interesting is we have seen ongoing, as we expected, resilience in the housing market. 
I'm just going to show you a few <clears throat> a few screens. So I'll share um, some screens right now, mate. Yeah. Uh, so first screen that I'm going to share uh, is Sydney house prices. So this is the CoreLogic index. I'll actually just go to I'll hit max here. Yeah. And so basically, this is the boom from 2012 to 2017. This is the correction in house prices. We called that boom in in 2017. We said there'd be a 10% bust, and that's what we got. And in April 19 last year, I said the bust, this is about here when prices were still falling. I said the bust is over uh, and we're going to get a 10% bounce in prices, which is what we got. But you can see that house prices, if I go over the last three months, <clears throat> sorry, the last six months, you can see that house prices in Sydney, mate, um, continued rising uh, over February, March, and only in April have we started to see them very modestly flatline. Now, this is a daily index. Um, it's probably the what is the most advanced daily index in the world. Now, if I switch um, to another screen, which is our Melbourne house price uh, screen here, <clears throat> you can see a somewhat similar story. So yep. prices, whoa, prices start rising, uh, you know, in mid-2019. You get a circa 10% increase in uh, capital gains, and they continued increasing in Melbourne over February, March, and we've just started to see them flatline over April. Um, finally, I might just quickly have a look at uh, Brisbane prices. So again, I'll just share one more screen. <clears throat> so this is uh, Brisbane prices here. And um, same story, flatline in mid-2019, a strong recovery, but we've seen Brisbane prices increase over February, March, and April. Now, here are the key points, Peter, that if we're right and uh, the number of new infections in key developed economies peaked in early April, and if we're right that the PM can junk his six-month business hibernation plan and actually exit containment rapidly over May, <clears throat> what that means is we can transition to a new normal much more quickly than people anticipate and we can revitalise economic growth uh, more rapidly than was otherwise thought. And Chris, uh, and Chris, can I just throw this one in as well? If sure. that's the case, is there scope for the government to reduce the promised spending that they thought was going to be necessary over the six-month program? Or will there be a lot of just uh, promised spending that will actually happen which could actually fire up the economy so strongly into 2021. Yeah, so uh, that's an excellent question. And this is something I've actually been writing about in the AFR for some time, uh, Peter. And let me just firstly say that Prime Minister Scott Morrison has done a magnificent job with the state governments in managing mm. uh, Australia's containment approach, which has been basically the most successful in the world other than Hong Kong and New Zealand. Um, secondly, I think when they announced this massive mother of all fiscal policy packages. At that time, the epidemiologists, the best medical advice in the world was going to be that <clears throat> we would have shut down, we would have a lockdown for six months, and we would have this depressionary economic result, double-digit unemployment and so on, which would have been an absolute economic catastrophe. In fact, I think the health, uh, social and human costs of a depression would have been worse than the virus itself. Mm. But if we're right and infection rates have peaked early, 
Uh, if we're right, there's not going to be any massive uh, second wave. If we're right, the R0 or the reproduction rate of the virus is now well below one, uh, and we have a decent chance of eliminating it um, whilst we keep the borders closed, then we can come out of containment quickly. And then the corollary of that is this profound point you've made, because the PM, with the information available to him at that time, made the decision to unveil um, this huge fiscal stimulus that is actually the most aggressive or generous in the world on expenditure and revenue terms, um, which was sized for <clears throat> this catastrophe. But if the catastrophe uh, turns out that it's not going to materialise, then absolutely you would think that JobKeeper would be reviewed in three months. There is a, a pre-provision in JobKeeper um, to review it after the first three months. And I can see a still incredibly generous fiscal uh, stimulus remaining in place, but one that is <clears throat> recalibrated and more appropriately sized for the current crisis. But just coming back to house prices, first point is that, um, again, house prices have continued to rise in Sydney and Brisbane through April, and there's no evidence yet of any housing catastrophe. Auction clearance rates have plummeted, but that's because regulations prevent people from actually holding auctions uh, physically. And what we have seen is a big voluntary withdrawal in the number of properties that are being listed. There is no sign as yet of any forced selling, which is what I think would have to be a precondition for a very, <clears throat> a very aggressive uh, drawdown in house prices. Much of the uh, unemployment has been concentrated amongst renters, and the banks crucially have offered between 5 and 10% of all their resi mortgage borrowers um, this very generous six-month repayment holiday. That repayment holiday won't show up in their arrears statistics. Uh, so they've done a deal with APRA where they won't have to hold more capital <clears throat> against those, those loans. It's more of a, a national holiday, much like the one we're experiencing right now. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think there's every prospect that if we can come out of containment over May and June, um, uh, sort of converge towards the new normal, it won't be the same as what we experienced beforehand. Uh, we won't be travelling overseas yet. Uh, there'll be some zombie businesses that are um, permanently destroyed, like Virgin Airlines. There will be, I think, structurally higher unemployment. So I would expect the unemployment rate to normalise around <clears throat> 6 or 7% um, over the next 6 to 12 months. Uh, and conditions will be softer. Um, but I think that the housing market is likely to appear, experience a period over the next six months of um, softness. So I think house prices will likely flatline or at worst fall by up to 5%. <clears throat> and I completely disagree with this idea um, that house prices are going to fall 10, 20, 30, 40%. It is possible. Um, you know, there's many known unknowns and unknown unknowns. We need to understand whether we are going to get a vaccine, whether we can build uh, herd immunity or immunity generally, like can we uh, develop antibodies that fight the virus? We need to know whether we can get antiviral drugs that will kill the virus. But I'm quietly confident. As one example, mate, everyone's worried about travel and tourism. But more Australians um, head overseas over each year than those that uh, uh, travel to Australia. And I think there will be a very substantial substitution towards uh, domestic tourism because we won't be able to leave our borders. Um, and we will have a uh, more or less uh, semi-unprecedented uh, set of fiscal and monetary policy settings that will provide tremendous support. And that's another key point vis-a-vis -vis housing. Uh, we've had uh, mortgage rate reductions. You can get 2% loan rates. 
The Aussie housing market is uniquely very interest rate elastic. About 80% of all borrowers have <clears throat> a, a variable rate loan, and those that are on fixed rates have very short-term fixed rate loans. In the US economy, most people have a 30-year fixed rate loan. And what that means is that the RBA cash rate cuts, um, you know, reducing the cash rate from 1.5% to 0.25% today over the last 12 months has furnished about 75 to 150 basis points of mortgage rate cuts over the last year. And I think house prices this cycle will increase by 20 to 30% nationally. We've had 11 percentage points of capital gains so far. So I think that once we get through this air pocket in growth over the next circa six to nine months, I think that the boom will continue and we will get another 10 to 20% of capital gains to complete this cycle. And how long will the cycle last for, Chris? Well, it could last for a very long time. And we saw the last cycle lasted on, you know, over the course of uh, 2012 through to uh, 2017. Um, and we, we do have these you know, ultra-stimulatory monetary and fiscal policy settings that are going to encourage credit creation. I mean, the banks are being actively told to aggressively lend to households and businesses. The banks, through the new term funding facility via the RBA, this is a brand new facility that never existed before. And the RBA will provide the banks a minimum of $90 billion of funding at a cost of just 0.25%. And it's three-year or term funding. So it's long-term funding for the banks, um, which means that they can take, take this ultra-cheap money and uh, support businesses through loans, households through loans. Um, so I'm actually um, you know, relatively sanguine that the actual economic damage um, and the downturn won't be nearly as bad as people fear. And I think housing vis-a-vis -vis or relative to all other asset classes has fared exceptionally well. So, you know, if I just quickly flick back to um, one of these charts. So if you look at Brisbane uh, Resi property, I mean, all the way through this volatility, February, prices are higher. March, prices are higher. April, prices are higher. And if I just go to RP Data Sydney here, and recut that for uh, our viewers today. And I hit GP on my Bloomberg terminal. Thank you, Bloomberg. Um, you'll see the same thing in, in Sydney uh, over February when, so Aussie shares fell 8% in February, yet Sydney prices were up. In March, Aussie shares fell 21%. Sydney prices were up. Super was getting smoked. Mm. <clears throat> Private equity was getting smoked. The listed investment trusts on the ASX, the LICs and LITs, the high yield bond funds were getting smoked down 20, 30, 40%. Um, everything was getting smoked, but Resi was the one redoubt, the one safe harbour, um, rightly or wrongly. You know, it's not that I necessarily want um, massive QE and ultra low rates. In the past, I've argued against it, Peter. I will just uh, stop this screen sharing to ensure that you can see my um, my aesthetically appealing visage. <laughs> okay, look, look, there's the one, one big problem with Zoom and Skype and all that sort of stuff. I can't shut you up as easily. And you know, Chris, I could, I could listen to you all day. And for a moment there, I thought I was going to have to. But, <laughs> but there are a couple of good questions I know my viewers would love me to ask. Um, before you came on the scene, the one-time professor of econometrics at University of New South Wales, Ron Bewley, and Ron used to be a star on my TV show, you might recall. Ron once said to me, one of the best... Uh, uh, 
financial market econometricians is a guy called Michael Knox, who's the chief economist at Morgan's. And I was interviewing Michael last week and he said that there's a very good chance that we might see a roaring 20s of the 21st century when we get out of all of this. What's your view on that, Chris? Yeah, so that's interesting. So in late February, I wrote to the Prime Minister, the RBA Governor and Deputy Governor, Wayne Byers at APRA and Treasurer Frydenberg, and I said that um, we, I thought that markets would not be able to price a global pandemic. And when you have these extreme information asymmetries, you see often market failures and a complete evaporation of liquidity. And I warned them repeatedly over and over again that this is what we thought would come. But crucially, to cauterize that preemptively, we argued <clears throat> policymakers needed to unleash unconditional and unrestricted QE, so asset purchases and fiscal policy support and obviously liquidity support. They were about three to five weeks too late. So we got that QE and liquidity support at the very back end of March. It took the RBA 19 days uh, to get their head around the, the crisis. And obviously we experienced unprecedented um, falls in, in the prices of certain assets. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, coming back to my original point regarding the current calibration and size of fiscal policy, <clears throat> there is every possibility um, that we do end up with a speculative melt-up. And certainly in my portfolios, you know, we're 100% focused on assets that are likely to benefit from QE. Uh, we own no corporate bonds. We own no high-yield bonds. We only own um, bonds issued by government-guaranteed banks. And um, you know, in our portfolios, we've had our strongest returns ever in history since um, basically uh, the second half of March through April uh, we did see the best buying opportunities in history. I I sold $422 million worth of bonds in January, Peter, net sold, um, and I net bought $900 million worth of bonds over um, late February and through the course of March. So when everyone was rushing for the exits and um, you know selling uh, relentlessly, we were buying, <clears throat> and we've now started taking profits in April. But the Morgan's gentleman that you referred to, I don't know him. I've never sparred with him. Um, so he's obviously not in the first grade of uh, uh, <laughs> economics community. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I, I'm not going to call you a wanker because he's just a good mate. But that's <laughs> that anyway, you are. But, but I will say he does. He does. Cut to the chase. Cut to the chase. He does work for Morgan's, and Morgan's is a stockbroker. So I have no doubt that he's 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 kind of spinning a positive line for for stocks. But I think um, I think. We, we were absolutely emphatically of the view that there were once-in-a-lifetime buying opportunities in credit financial credit markets um, in March. So let's talk about bank hybrids. And by the way, I, by, by the way, you did say that, and I actually did use it in a presentation in um, in early March. That if if your predictions were right, that we get through this quicker than people expected, it was going to create the buying opportunity of a lifetime. So I will actually say you got that definitely right. But go on. So it doesn't matter where we look across the capital stack, but if you look at the major bank senior bonds in the GFC, the credit spread, which is basically the compensation that people get uh, for lending to say CBA for a five-year bond above the cash rate, that credit spread uh, blew out in the GFC to about 200 basis points over bank bills. And it blew out similarly in March. Uh, major bank subordinated bond spreads which were trading at 160 over bank bills in January, blew out to 400 over bank bills in March. And hybrid spreads blew out from 260 over bank bills to 840 over bank bills 
in March. In the GFC, five-year major bank hybrid spreads only got to 590 over. So you got to 840 over in March 2020, but in March 2008, they only got to <clears throat> 590 over, despite the fact that the four major banks have halved their risk-weighted leverage on their balance sheets. So there were tremendous opportunities. Um, I remain very positive about financial credit. Um, I think equity beta will do well um, when we go through the second regime change that we've hypothesized. So the, the first regime change we focused on was our predicted peak in infections in early April. The yep. second regime change <clears throat> that I think is important for equity investors as well is um, countries moving very quickly out of containment. I think, Peter, when markets see uh, countries around the world normalising economic activity, you're going to get a, a strong rally in equity beta or equity indices. Having said that, there's going to be tremendous heterogeneity because I think the mid-market is going to suffer from um, lots of business failures, defaults, downgrades in credit ratings, and I think you'll see mid-market and high-yield lenders um, really suffer from a lot of distress. Uh, likewise, I think you'll see tremendous earnings volatility. So I'm sure within equities, <clears throat> as there is within bond markets, uh, there will be uh, considerable opportunity, but it is complex. And I'm not here saying that we're about to embark on the mother of all economic booms. I don't agree with that at all. We have... Um, outline what we call a view-shaped recovery, <clears throat> which is basically an initial sugar hit as people get back to work and, uh, you know, for example, the payrolls data suddenly improves sharply. But I think thereafter, businesses are going to be left with more debt, households are going to have more debt, governments are going to have more debt. And so I think the growth profile is going to be uh, a fairly subdued one, Peter. So okay, I, so I you're saying it's not a V-shape or a U-shape, it's a view-shaped recovery. <laughs> Yeah, so basically the yeah. idea is uh, an initial bounce up, um, but then thereafter it's a more gradual uh, U-shaped recovery. So that's our patented or trademarked uh, V-shaped recovery. Which I will, I will steal, I and it's not trademarked at all. You're, you're, you're carrying on. That's a very right. good. It's a very good thing for me to steal. Now let, let's just wrap this up then for people now, who. For people, no, no, no. I'm not here for another hour and a half, mate. <laughs> yeah, no. One, one day, one day, I'll give you a solid hour. But this is wrap this up, mate, because people, because particularly when you started talking about, you know, bond yields and stuff like that, you, you could have sent people to sleep. You understand it. Most people don't. But let's just sum this up, then, Chris. Looking at the rest of this year, you're expecting house prices to to recover. You're expecting the stock market to do okay. Some parts of the market will do very, very well. Other parts of the market will struggle because of the, the, the backwash from all this um, closures of the economy. But this roll into 2021 and 2022, are you expecting optimism to prevail or pessimism? Well, I think in the, um, you know, over the next three, six, nine, 12, and let's say 18, possibly 24 months, I think that um, there is going to be so much fiscal and monetary policy stimulus stimulus left in the global economy. Uh, we've got record low rates. Uh, the central banks are not going to stop buying their government bonds and corporate bonds because the minute they do, interest rates are going to jack back up and that's going to immediately trigger a, a great deal of distress. So I think the portents are promising. There's, there's certainly grounds for um, a lot of optimism. Yeah. Um, there are, I think, fat tails. There are big risks. I mean, one of the things that worries me is what does China's role in the world look like as we come out of this? How much retribution uh, will folks seek 
um, and, and re reparations will they seek for the almost priceless <clears throat> human and economic costs that have been inflicted on the world by this crisis, wittingly or unwittingly. Um, and I worry about miscalculations. I mean, Trump's an immensely capricious and mercurial character. He's very unpredictable. She has, I think, managed his global relations very poorly ever since he came to power and has escalated tensions with Japan, uh, India, the US, Australia. And COVID-19, I think, has really coalesced um, a coalition of the willing between uh, Europe and North America and um, like-minded states in Asia um, in, in respect of uh, taking a, a new look at their relationship with China and looking at China through a different lens. I don't think China is now regarded as being a um, benevolent and benign actor who's going to buy into you know, the Western liberal democratic um, open <clears throat> trading system. And I think that you're going to see uh, a significant uh, effort, as we saw during the trade war, to decouple from China. And that could be also, interestingly, positive for growth. I think you'll see a lot of insourcing <clears throat> globally as people decouple supply chains, and that will stimulate local activity. It will be inflationary. It may not be the economically most efficient uh, set of arrangements, but in the short to medium term, that could be could be fine. But I'm 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 uh, I'm I'm very positive about the next three to six months. I've got to say, looking beyond that horizon, Peter, I'm more cautious. I'm just worried about. I mean, think about 2020 so far. We woke up, and we had the Iranians send 22 ballistic missiles uh, that they launched at two U.S. bases in Iraq. We then had, you know, Australia on fire for much of the month. Um, we've had Resident Evil 4 in the form of the first global pandemic in 100 years. Um, and we now have a sort of reordering of global geopolitical relations with potentially sort of unanticipated consequences. Could Wuhan be the Franz Ferdinand of, you know, the next major power global conflict? I don't know, but it, it does worry me. Okay, mate. Well, fantastic. As always, uh, very insightful. And uh, we have to say that your strike rate in 2020, as you would say for every year, has been very, very good. Thanks for coming on the program. I appreciate the time, Peter. I really do. Well, one thing we try to do in this property show of the Switzer organisation is to try and work out what is going on in the property sector. Now, of course, a key driver of the property sector is going to be the economy. And so we're talking to the senior economist at AMP Capital, Diana Mussina. Thanks for coming on the program, Diana. Thanks for having me on, Peter. Uh, I feel really bad, well, feel unusual calling you Diana after calling you Diana for all these years, but I'm glad you've corrected me. <laughs> Finally, yes. Well, you know, I've got an Italian auntie. I shouldn't have got that one wrong, but anyway, <laughs> I did. Um, so, Diana, let's just look at what you're seeing right now. Uh, we've talked to valuers. We've talked to uh, uh, Chris Joy uh, on what he's uh, thinking he's seeing uh, in the market going forward. What's the AMP capital view on the property sector? It's a hard one to pick at the moment. There are a lot of different factors kind of pulling prices up on one hand and down on the other. The last few weeks has seen a fall in Melbourne property prices and it looks like they're down slightly for the month, whereas in Sydney prices are still up for the mm. month of April. And the biggest reason for that, I think, is because Melbourne did have stricter restrictions around people who could inspect properties. 
uh, whereas Sydney's ones were um, a bit looser. So these restrictions around inspections and auctions are definitely having a negative impact on property prices. These restrictions are likely to be eased in the near term because we're seeing you know, some easing in broad lockdown measures. That should be positive for property prices in, on, on the one hand. However, with a rising un unemployment rate, it's difficult to see a lot of upside momentum for the property market in Australia for the next few months, I think. Yeah, I, I think most people you know, accept that prices aren't going to rise, but they're, they're pondering how deep, deeply they might fall. And you know, as, these, as the information changes around how long the closures and lockdowns might occur, uh, be in place for, I can imagine you and your illustrious colleague, Shane Oliver, running back to your computers and, and, and reworking your predictions of how much the economy contracts by 20, 2020 and how much it then rebounds by in 2021. And that's my next question. What's, what are we going to contract by and what are we going to re rebound by? And we want you to be 100% correct, Deanna. Well, that would be difficult because we change our forecast pretty much on a daily basis at the moment, yeah. given all the numbers coming in. Look, for the next two quarters, the a pace of growth would be exceptionally weak. Australia entered a recession in the March quarter with a small fall. In the US this week, for example, we saw that their GDP fell by about 1% over the quarter. I think in Australia we'll probably see a similar number for the March quarter. The June quarter will be much uh, will be a much larger fall. We, we're looking for a fall of about 10% over the quarter. Uh, so overall for the year, I mean, it's going to look pretty soft. In the September and December quarter, we should see a bit of a rebound, but growth for the year as a whole will probably fall by about 6% in Australia. Mm. And that's the largest fall that we would have seen since the Great Depression here. Yeah. In 2021, we should be supported by an increase uh, in the money supply, lower interest rates, the RBA doing a lot of stimulus, of course, the fiscal stimulus that the government's done. I think the government's fiscal program is probably one of the best in the world in terms of its impact on the economy. However, we don't expect the actual level of GDP growth to get back to its pre-coronavirus level until sometime in 2022. So we're looking for a pretty... A soft recovery, even though if you look at it on a chart and you look at the growth rate, it will look like a V-shaped recovery. But that's how all recoveries will look once you've had such a deep downturn. Mm. It's funny, I, I can't remember the economist's name, but it was one of the, 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 the usual suspects that people like me you know, talk about or interview. Uh, I'm going to have to try and find it, find it was. But there was one economist out there, you might have seen it as well, who suggested that we might not even have a technical recession, which would mean that the March quarter, I guess, is just a, a little bit positive because January and February were okay compared to March. And then mm -hmm. the June quarter has to be a shocking negative. But then we get a little bit positive in September. Is that too way out to believe, Deanna? It's possible because of the strength in retail sales. Would you believe that all the panic buying in March actually led to the biggest rise in retail sales that we've ever yeah. seen? Even the toilet paper effect, saved by the toilet paper yeah. effect. Yeah. And hand sanitizer, paper towels, pasta. Uh, that panic buying led to the strongest rise ever, even more than um, all the purchases that people did before the GFC, uh, before the GST came into effect. Yeah. And, and that will add you know, a pretty decent chunk to consumer spending over the March quarter. 
However, I don't think it will be enough to offset the weakness that we're going to get in tourism. Remember that the uh, travel ban from Chinese tourists started back in January, and we do rely a lot on Chinese uh, tourist arrivals from a retail perspective, education arrivals as well. They would have all ceased business travel. So I think that those, those negatives will still outpace some of the positives that you might get from all this panic buying. So I, I still think that we will have a technical recession. But it's interesting that you say that. I mean, for example, I don't think China will actually have a technical recession. They had a very negative March quarter, mm. but they look like they're pretty much back at normal capacity now. Yeah. I must admit, I do love that quote, what if the opposite is true? And it, it does cover so many things that you know, people like you and I watch on a regular basis. Um, now, I want you to explain one thing before I get back into property, because I, I read one of Shane's notes, I think it was last week, we actually pointed out that the travel effect on GDP is actually a lot smaller than what people expect. And, and I guess part of the reason is that despite the fact we get a lot of travel dollars coming in, Australians are prolific travellers going out. And I think, he, do you say 0.5% of GDP? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so once you take into account the um, imports or Australians travelling overseas, the actual impact uh, for net travel to Australia is of GDP is worth about 0.5 or 1% of, of GDP. So it's not huge, but you have to remember that consumer spending makes up about 65% of Australia's of Australia's growth. So that's uh, really, you know, the key, the, the key driver here. Mm. Uh, but small changes in travel can still make um, the difference between a positive or a negative GDP print. So um, it will still make a difference. However, I suppose that the key point is that even if our borders are closed for six months, for 12 months, yes, our GDP growth won't be as strong as it would have been with all that travel. However, Australians will still be able to travel domestically. We might yeah. have open borders with New Zealand, so not all is lost. Yeah, and, and that's right. The intra or interstate travel could could make up because we know all Australians are desperate to travel after being locked up. So the Gold Coast and, and the uh, Sunshine Coast and the Port Douglas area may well experience some fantastic uh, growth. Uh, yeah. Now, let, let's just uh, extrapolate. Um, when the government was talking about hibernating for six months, what kind of growth story were you expecting? And if that hibernation ends up only being three months, what would you adjust your forecast by? And I, I know it's a, it's a very easy question to be asked on the spot, but hell, you, you're the person who should be able to do it. Uh, look, I think the biggest impact will be a less negative June quarter uh, because businesses will be, uh, some businesses will be back up and running around May. And you and you'll get maybe a month and a half of positive flows to the economy. So maybe we won't see such a large ten percent fall like we're expecting in the June quarter. Yeah, uh, it might be a bit softer. I mean, it will still be a big negative, but it won't be as large. Uh, that's probably the, the biggest impact. And then, of course, maybe the rebound in September um, will will be better as well because you will see more business activity and economic growth. Okay. Now, one thing we know is a big driver of house prices is is unemployment high and real unemployment. Now, the unemployment numbers we get this year aren't, aren't going to be real unemployment numbers because JobKeeper will sort of cover it up a bit, I presume, uh, fill us in on that. But eventually, 
there will be a residue of unemployment from the, the businesses that have struggled. The businesses that actually have used the coronavirus to sort out its workforce where they might have hung on to people during a boom, but you know, now this has come, they'll, they'll you know, reshape their workforce. What do you think the unemployment rate, the real rate will be come say, let's say the spring sale of houses, where do you think it will be and what might that be the impact on the spring property sales? Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you make. JobKeeper will keep the unemployment rate artificially lower than probably where it could be. But a lot of those businesses might not survive the six-month period when the job uh, after the six-month period when JobKeeper is going to be ceased. Mm. So we think the unemployment rate will end the year probably somewhere at around eight percent after a peak of about ten percent in the next few months. Eight percent is still extremely high for Australia. That's equivalent to where it was around the GFC. We're at an unemployment rate at the moment of just over 5%. So it's a pretty big increase. There'll also be a big increase in underemployment, which is people that want to work more hours. So maybe full-time workers that have been shifted to part-time work or casual workers who want more hours. That's still a drag on household incomes. And that's still important, even though it might not be evident in the unemployment rate. And I think that this drag to household incomes, uh, because the unemployment rate will be much higher at 8%, that will really keep property price growth low even though you might not see continued falls in property prices, it's really difficult to see an environment in the next 12 months where you see sustained increases in, in property prices. Yeah. Deanna, as always, it's great catching up with you and thanks for your insights. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Well, clearly the impact of the coronavirus on the property sector has implications for lots of the services businesses that operate in the sector. I'm talking to Tony Mangione, who's a, a long-term mate of mine, and he owns the Mangione Property Valuations and Consultancy. Tony, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Pete. All right, so I, I know you say there's some really important dates that have come out of the coronavirus, but I would like to hit you with the, the first question as a valuer and you've been in the game a long time, have you ever had to encounter anything like this that clearly has a big impact on A, your business, but B, the valuations that are critically important for everybody who tries to get a loan where the banks just want to know, you know what the valuation is and also people even trying to work out what they should pay for a property? Well, that's right, Pete, because um I've never seen anything like this. I've seen three of them, which was in the 90s and the GFC. This one's a two-pronged attack whereby we're hitting, getting hit by the health issues as well as the economical issues. And basically, uh, the API sat down with the uh, banks and the insurers, and they sort of come up with um, some significant protocols to enable us to do valuations um, that we don't usually do. Because as you would be aware, evaluation starts off with a full inspection whereby we actually go through the property and make our notes, measure up, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So with with the, um, the government putting restrictions on um, auctions and open for inspections around the 25th of um, March, we had to rethink the way we were doing things. And some of those were full inspections or an external inspection whereby we were given certain uh, protocols whereby we, we didn't have to go into the property where we can inspect the property based upon old reports, 
uh, information by using FaceTime and, and those sorts of things. There's another one that the bigger companies have come up with, which is a virtual uh, inspection, but it's not really accepted at the moment. So, yes, there has been uh, a big change, but basically we're adapting to it as best we can. Mm. And Tony, does this mean, if it's possible, where you can come out and do the external valuation, link it to the, like the calibre of the property on the outside compared to the rest of the, the, the neighbourhood, but then can you, say for example, get the owner of the property to do a, a, a video inspection so you get an idea of the calibre of the finishes and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, so there, there are some apps that, that some of the big companies have developed whereby they can do a video link up. But from me with a smaller business, FaceTime is probably just as good where they can walk us around the house. Yep. Um, and in some cases, some of the banks want a GPS reading. All the photos that we take all have to have a date imprint on the photo. So it's in the report. So basically, you know, they can walk us around the property um, so yeah, it, it's it's something that we can we can use because the hardest thing, if you're looking outside and you can't see inside, you then can't do a comparison to the evidence that you're going to be looking at to come up with a figure for the valuation. Yeah. And I, I just seem to think this is a short-term fix until such time, because there are certain things that when a valuer takes an instruction to do a valuation, we have a questionnaire that we send out to the client to make sure that it's safe for us and mm. us acknowledging to them that we're safe to enter the site. And when we get to these sites, we prefer if all the doors are open, lights are on, and, and the client can step outside, we can go and do the valuation, they can step back inside, then we can do the rest of the valuation like measuring up, etc. So it's it's got us around the issues of the restrictions that the, the government's put on us. but. That, those restrictions seem to be starting to be, become a bit more relaxed in the last couple of days that we've seen. Yeah, and that, that would make you much, much more comfortable. Tony, can you give us an idea, look, and you might, this may well happen in, in the recent uh, weeks or so, where, whereby you know, you, you, you know of a property of a certain value and, and you've, been, uh, you've been asked to revalue it again since the coronavirus, and how, are you able to say, what the change in value of the property is? I know it's a big ask, but hell, I've got to ask you anyway. Because a, a lot of people out there are wondering what kind of valuation effect the coronavirus has had on a typical you know, Sydney property which you'd be valuing. That's a very interesting question and a good question, Pete, because um, at present I'm doing a portfolio of properties for a, for a non-profit organisation which I did in 2017 yep. and naturally 2017 was the very top of the market in November 2017 and then we saw this flatline effect and so any properties valued from that point in time there was sort of, I'm finding at the moment there's sort of like a, a reduction in the property. The, the problem the valuers have at the moment is that there's less amount of transactions happening and the other thing that we're finding is that because that the auction results aren't being posted in the public arena, we have to wait for these transactions to hit RP data, which could be something up to three and four weeks' time. So the valuer has to have a good rapport with the agents to be able to find out what the properties might be selling for mm. because the banks want evidence that 
is less than six months old and also we have to be able to use we can use unsettled sales but they're not confirmed so it's very hard there's a lack of information out there and transactions are, very, are slowing up um, but it, look it's still moving and look before this this coronavirus actually hit us the market was starting to move and I was seeing uh, in February some, we were seeing this sort of thing, the fear of missing out was happening. Mm. And also there was a lot of people that had uh, sold their properties looking to buy properties. So there was a bit of a surge there. But things I have hearing from agencies that the listings have dropped off. Mm. Uh, but the inquiry is up in the eastern suburbs. I heard the other day through one of my close colleagues at Ray White um, at Double Bay. So mm. it, it's interesting what's going on. Yeah, and I guess you know the the the, the big challenge for you is you know, you've got relationships with lots of businesses like banks and real estate agents and whatever, and and your valuations if they're really way out and wrong, it's not good for your reputation. But at the moment, you you really don't know what's going on in this really unusual market. Correct and. What the, what the Institute have come up with, and not so much the Institute, but our insurers, because what took a long time for us as valuers to get endorsements now, we've got these endorsements that need to go into the valuations. And one of those endorsements is a thing called market uncertainty, whereby the, the macroeconomics of the, of the COVID-19 outbreak um, have sort of basically uh, disrupted the market sector. So as you would be aware, there is a market value definition, willing buyer, willing seller, which is Spencer versus the Commonwealth. In some respects, that, that market value doesn't really apply in this COVID-19. So we have to sort of um, make a judgment decision. And I think it would be brave of any valuer putting, trying to adjust a figure of the sales downwards but a lot of them would be in the back of their mind having a conservative effect on the value, uh, just like properties that might be coming up that were off the plan sales about a year ago, whereby, you know, those figures would be lower as well. So it's a challenging time for valuers and it's nothing more the same than the other types of downturns we've had. But this is a two-pronged attack, Peter, and it's really, really... Um, and, and the big key to this is, I believe, is that how long will we be in these restrictions? The, the faster we come out of it, the more the markets are less going to be affected. And by the fact that once these restrictions come off and the, the stimulus packages stop, I don't know whether there's going to be a further downfall in the market. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see. And ultimately, you're going to learn more at the coalface than you are in speculation. But let me just put you on the spot. Um, you know, one of our old colleagues from our beloved North Bondi Surf Club, come to you and say, Tane, you're, a, you're an expert. I've got a place in Bondi. It was worth $3 million you know, a year ago. What do you reckon is going to be my worst case scenario if I go to auction this weekend? Well, given that, I would do the, the, the same as I would do for any valuation. I would start by trying to do the, the inspection, unless I'd done the valuation in previously, and also then uh, take a, a look at what the market does. And in any type of downfall in market, rather than relying on the data that's coming from, say, RP data, price finder, or any records out there, 
the valuer has to sort of look at the most current information. And that's where I said before, we have to sort of talk to the agents and see what's going on. But the other thing that's becoming longer is the days on market, which is a very good indicator of the way properties are selling. And I could say to him that possibly there could be, it could be uh, steady, but there might be a five to 10% discount, which might apply. Look, and I've always said that it's going to be very hard to make a, a call in regards to that because of the less transactions and the data, trying to compare the data from the last time to now, because mm. last time we had auctions and we had opens for inspections. Now we don't have that. And Tone, over the years, I've we done a lot of you know, property transactions and whatever. I've always thought one of the strongest indicators of whether we're going to do well at an auction is how many contracts are taken out before the auction. How reliable is that? If you have to look at all the indicators out there that, that, that makes you feel comfortable about doing an auction, which one is the, the one that makes you think that this property is going to sell? Well, the first reason why you would put a property to auction is because it's got some unusual characteristic about it. And that's that's the first thing. If it doesn't have that, it's just a normal run of the mill property. There's a tendency not to take the property to auction. And generally, that would happen in, in the, the eastern suburbs and those types of properties. And the amount of contracts is probably important. Um, in the better times, you know, the concrete uh, contracts were flowing quite readily. But at the moment, from what I'm hearing, and this is what I'm hearing about the virtual auctions, that a lot of people aren't um, accepting that. I, 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 at the moment, are trying to list. I haven't watched one yet. Um, there's an app called uh, Auction Now, which the Cooley uh, Auctions have come up with. I, I'm going to try and view one over the weekend or shortly to see what happens. But what I'm hearing from that is that people are, are plugging into this, but they're just sitting on their hands. They're not trusting what's going on. So there's there's not that atmosphere, and they, they want the, the, the restrictions to be lifted as soon as possible. So it's not the same where in a auction room where a, a, an agent can go up to the person and sort of talk to them face to face. Yeah. Okay, mate. So what, what's the message you would give to people out there? You know, you're you're a, a person who's been in the valuing game for a long time. What's the key message you'd like to leave to someone out there who's either going to be a, a seller or a buyer of property over the next month or two? Well, my thoughts are if... The people that are selling at the moment are the people that have to sell. And that's shown by the amount of listings that were coming onto the market. I believe that, you know, there will be, we're in a holding pattern at the moment. And generally what I believe is that the, the months of June, July are usually the slower months within uh, the property circles. And therefore, you know, hopefully that this winter month is a mild winter for our sake, for the health concerns of COVID-19 and as well, the, the auction results. I believe if you want to put your property on the market and, and look, you buy and sell in the same market, so it's not really going to affect. Um, I'm going to make a, a statement here that I've been asked uh, a dozen times a day, what do you think the effect's going to be? I don't think it's going to be as big as some of those per, uh, com commentators are saying 30%. It could be anywhere between 7 to 10% downfall in the market, but we can't establish that until we've got some real clear data. So, look, if, if you want to sell your property, I believe it's okay. But, you know, if you want to hire the services of a valuer, um, 
and that's become um, a, a, an idea that, you know, we've got the buyer's agency out there who I'm in close contact with some buying agents and they still believe that the market's, you know, steady as it goes at the moment. Tony, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Peter, and stay well and safe. Thank you. Cheers, mate.